You are dismissed to your classes right now. And the rest of us are going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, this would be a great time to get one. They are on the table in the lobby, and I bet our ushers would grab a couple for you. Um, When we do a book study like this, we're in Mark chapter 10. Um, I really like people to follow along with me so they can see the text and see what's happening. We're going to look at a lot of other verses, and we're going to put them on the screen. But if you're in Mark uh, chapter 10, if you're using the Bible uh, on the tables out there, it's uh, page 703 or page 1014. Eric uh, Weyenmayer was the first blind man ever to climb Mount Everest to reach the top. Um, Now he is in business helping people see the world in new ways. Weyenmayer calls himself an unrealistic optimist. Fast Company magazine interviewed him and asked what he looks for in recruiting teammates to climb places like Mount Everest. He says, I look for people who have an unrealistic optimism about life. I hear people saying, seeing is believing. I want people to believe the opposite. Believing is seeing. You've got to first believe in what you're doing and be sure you have a reason to believe it. You can tell who those people are, he says. You say, hey, want to climb Everest with a blind guy? Pretty quickly, you'll figure out who the true believers are. So are you a person who approaches life with an attitude that seeing is believing or believing is seeing? In our passage today, the disciples are blind and a blind man sees. And this morning, as we look at the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, we're going to identify three principles from the life of Jesus. We're going to begin with uh, verse 32, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And here's what Mark writes for us. He says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be Betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. First principle, following Jesus leads me to total commitment. Following Jesus leads me to total commitment. If I follow Jesus, he is going to lead me to a total commitment. Verse 32, uh, Jesus leads the way. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. So they're on their way. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus made a major turn in his ministry. He was way up north, and he began to move south. And we said he was going to Jerusalem. The text did not tell us until today exactly what their destination was. They were on their way up to Jerusalem because every approach to Jerusalem leads to up because of the elevation of Jerusalem. But not only that, it's where the temple of God was located. 
It's where people went to worship God and to meet God and to bring their offerings and their sacrifices to God. It was a holy place. In fact, it would be the most important place in the world on earth for a Jewish person. They went up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. It's kind of prominent for Mark. It was common for a rabbi to walk in front of his disciples. I would enjoy that, walking in front of everybody. But it was common for a rabbi to do. But Mark just really wants us to know. I mean, he's never mentioned this before. Jesus is leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Now, we don't know why the disciples were astonished, and we don't know why people were afraid, but something is different now. Jesus is leading the way, and they are destined for Jerusalem. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. I'll just read it to you. Um, and this is, may describe where Jesus was in his outlook There's a lot of things in Isaiah that are fulfilled in the Messiah, that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, it says, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Jesus uh, must have a real changed, focused attitude. And he has people's attention just when he walks. There's this seriousness about uh, this situation uh, that is coming. The disciples were astonished, and those who followed were afraid. There was something eerie, a seriousness. Um, Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. So he's going to give another prediction. But let's just see this on the map. There we go. Remember uh, Capernaum, way up north in Israel, that's uh, Jesus' headquarters for most of his ministry. And over two and a half years, we're in the northern part of Israel. Basically, he came to the south for uh, pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and then he went back. So uh, recently, uh, he's come down from Capernaum, crossed over the Jordan River on the east side or to our right, And he's come down toward Jericho. He's going to be in Jericho in just a few minutes. So we're not going to see the map again. So see where Jericho is. And Jericho is 18 miles from Jerusalem. And that's where he's going. Next week, he's going to be in Jerusalem. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 11. And the rest of the book of uh, Mark pretty much is six days. So there's a big focus in the Gospel of Mark of the last week of Jesus' life. So following Jesus leads me to total commitment. And uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, reminds us in in Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, he describes our walk, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's what believers are to do. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus was the, is the pioneer of our faith. He went on the way first. He led the way, and he has invited us to follow on the way. He's the pioneer of our faith. For the joy set before him. It wasn't joyful to go to the cross, but it was what was on the other side of the cross and the purpose of the cross that brought him joy, what he would do for us. 
For the joy uh, set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's after the resurrection. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews reminds us to keep our focus on Jesus. We're going to come back to this. Jesus predicts, secondly, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. We're in verses 33 and 34. This is the third time he predicts this. We've already seen it in Mark. Um, first prediction was Mark 8.31. Second prediction was Mark 9.31, where he predicted his death. And uh, verse 33 says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will confirm his death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit upon him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. So this is more explicit. It's way more explicit than the first prediction and the second prediction. First, he says, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to do these one at a time, but just leave them up there. Go to Jerusalem. We know where we're going. And the Son of Man will be betrayed. We already have heard that. He's going to be betrayed over over to the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, it will be the Sanhedrin. They are in charge. Uh, They are the ruling body of Israel, the most important group in Israel. It is comprised of uh, Sadducees and Pharisees, religious leaders, and chief priests. Interesting thing about this passage is chief priests. The the Son of Man will be turned over to chief priests. There were two. There's only supposed to be one. There were two in Israel at this time, Caiaphas and Annas, his father-in-law. And the religious leaders will condemn him to death. So it's going to be the Sanhedrin who make the decision that Jesus needs to be put to death. Now, it's easy for us to look back and say, yeah, yeah, I already know that. But this is all brand new. It's not happened. It's coming. The disciples are clueless about this stuff. And Jesus just keeps putting it out, and he keeps getting more explicit as he goes. The religious leaders will hand him over to the Gentiles, and that's going to be Pilate and the Romans. Now, this is, uh, we don't get this, uh, and this is new, by the way, not been revealed yet. This is very degrading for the Jewish people to have to let the Gentiles take part in this. They can't handle their own affairs. They've got to ask permission. Uh, the Jews couldn't, couldn't execute anybody. Only the Romans could execute. And so they have, the Jewish people have to get help from the Romans. This is appalling, really, for a Jewish person. The Gentiles, this, is, so this stuff is new. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him, and they're going to kill him, the Romans. It's a lot of information. And we, we have information in the Old Testament, and it's amazing how much comes through in the life of Jesus and in the Gospels and uh, during his uh, his crucifixion and death. Uh, This is an amazing amount of information. And then he says it again. He will rise again three days later. This has been a part of every prediction. There's going to be a resurrection. You would think the disciples might start to catch on. And they're going to be clueless all the way to the resurrection. So application here for us. Jesus leads and I follow. Jesus leads the way and I follow. Follow. Jesus is leading his disciples, and they are to follow him. They're going to Jerusalem. They're going to see him die. 
Jesus is leading the way for his church today. We are to follow him. Let me give you some passages that kind of remind us of who we are. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes this. This is for believers in the church today, those who have placed their faith in Christ and have been born again and experienced forgiveness and have eternal life. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and so have we. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the difference. We have Christ in us today to live for power, um, to enable us. The life I now live in the body, he's still got a body and he's still living in it. I live by faith in the Son of God. See, that's going to be the difference. I live by faith. I operate with a different set of values and circumstances. I have, the, I have Jesus in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He did that when he died on the cross. So there's this concept there's, of identifying with Jesus. There's this concept, I've been crucified with Christ, and that's a little bit hard to understand, but it's talking about a spiritual dimension of the something that happened when Christ died for us. And he gave us a victory uh, over sin and over death. In another passage, Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. We know Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we believe Easter, that Christ rose again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. That's the great thing. Christ died, and he only had to do it once because it was total, it was enough, and there's nothing to add. No more is needed. His death is everything. Paid the full penalty for our sin. The death he died, he died once to sin for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin because Christ died, because we've been crucified with Christ we are to count ourselves dead to sin. That's an attitude. It's a mindset. It's about what you believe. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Do you see yourself as alive to God? You've been given eternal life. You've been given spiritual life. Do you see yourself alive to God? Next slide. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and to offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And so there's a method to this madness. There's a reason to this theology. Christ died for you. You've been crucified with Christ. You don't have to live for sin. You can live a life to God. You don't have to let sin reign in your mortal body, but you need to make a choice. You need to, we, offer ourselves to God. One is negative. Don't offer your body parts to sin. It's your choice. Offer your body parts to God, alive. Living sacrifice, Romans 12. Okay. Um, and then let's... So let's go one more passage, First uh, Peter 2, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So if you follow Christ and if Christ is leading you, according to Scripture, this is going to lead to 
Are you willing to do whatever God wants? Are you willing to be whatever God wants you to be? Are you, gonna, are you willing to follow in his steps? So, um, he leads, I follow, even when it's hard. Second principle, following Jesus requires me to be a servant. Following Jesus requires me to be a servant, verses 35 to 55. We come to verse 35, and this is one of the most famous incidences in the life of the disciples. You know, sometimes, uh, this is a, you know, a famous passage. Sometimes people look at a, a passage and they say, well, you know, the second century church wrote this. They waited until after the events, and then they wrote about it. I'll tell you, this is one of those incidents that if James and John could go back and say, don't put this in the Bible, don't put this in the Bible, they would have done that. This, you know, imagine that if the Holy Spirit followed you around in some of your embarrassing moments, and then later he wanted to put in the Bible, and you didn't have a choice. It wasn't like you could talk somebody out of leaving it out because the Holy Spirit said, this is going to be in the Bible. So here we go. This is about asking Jesus for personal requests. Asking Jesus for things is a good thing. Verses 35 through 40. The request comes in 35 through 37. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee. Now, what do we know about James and John? Besides being sons of Zebedee, they're in the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. Remember, they got to go on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus spent a little extra time with them as leaders. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We have a personal favor to ask. Jesus just said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. And they said, we have a favor. We, we want you to do something for us. We would like you to write a blank check so that we can get this. Jesus could have been offended. In fact, I imagine his feelings were hurt. Have you ever been offended by somebody when you're talking about something really serious and hard just going through, and then they just change the subject? And, and that's what happened here to Jesus. And so Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. It's a good question. They replied, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other on your left in glory. Now, this, you know, seems a little bit callous on their part. It's, um, what do they want? They want the best. Now, I'm a little bit sympathetic toward them. I always have to think about the disciples and what they know and what they don't know, and I wouldn't be much smarter than they were. They had been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Mount Hermon, probably. You remember that? And Jesus appeared to Peter, James, and John with Elijah and Moses in glory. He was transfigured before their eyes. Everything turned white. It was glorious. And it was just a little snapshot of the future kingdom, a little kingdom picture, glory. The Jesus we serve does these things. James and John thinking, this is coming to pass. The, ma- the amazing thing, the good thing about James and John here is they believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's one of the things that Jesus has been teaching from the beginning. They now get it. He's the Messiah. They think he's really going to come into a kingdom. They're getting it. Still kind of clueless about how it's going to happen and what it means. Um, and re- think about this, too. If you're James and John, 
they heard Jesus teach Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Let's see that. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So why not? Let's just ask Jesus. One of us on the right, they don't care. The right is usually the most important. The left is usually the second. And so what they're asking is, in your kingdom, Jesus, we want the most important positions beside yours. Maybe if we could have yours, we would ask for it. But we're going to let you have yours. We want the other two, right and left. And um, so that's what they ask. But they've missed the point. They've bought into a world's view of success. Um, about power and rank and honor and wouldn't that be cool? This is not the kingdom way. This is not the way of the king. Jesus replies in verse 38, You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? So Jesus is going to use a couple of terms here to talk about what's coming. And he's using them figuratively. He talks about the cup. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? What's he talking about? He's talking about a cup of suffering. The idea of drinking a cup can be an idea of celebration and joy. That's one way that the figuratively this concept of the cup is used. The other is it can be a cup of suffering. It can be a cup of God's wrath poured out. It's used that way in the book of Psalms. The other term that Jesus used was the one of baptism. We think of Christian baptism. We think about being baptized in the water. Usually people don't get drowned. It's usually not bad. But in this context, this idea of baptism is a very hard one, a harsh one, a negative one. It's about being overwhelmed. And one of the pictures in the Old Testament is being overwhelmed with water, like being overwhelmed with sea billows, wave after wave, overwhelmed. What Jesus is talking about is being overwhelmed with suffering and the judgment that will come from God on the cross when God's wrath is poured out and is satisfied. He says, can you drink that cup and, and can you be baptized with this baptism? The response in verse 39, we can, they answered. Yep, we're in. And of course, they still don't get what's coming. They don't see how serious this is. Um, they were thinking about, you know, Jesus does these miracles. It's really cool. He always seems to win. He always seems to have the right answer. And, you know, that little thing about Jesus in glory with Moses and Elijah, this is going to happen. He's going to Jerusalem, and this is going to happen. But they don't know how. The explanation, verse 39 and 40, Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. That's not going to be good. And so they say, yes, they can. And he just goes ahead and gives them another little prophetic utterance here. You will. They too will suffer at the hands of sinful men. Jesus will suffer at the hands of sinful men. And so, they, so will they. They're not going to take on the sin of the world the way Jesus did. But they will suffer at the hands of evil people. 
James will be the first disciple who will die in Acts chapter 12. Herod will kill him with a sword. He will be executed publicly by Herod in Jerusalem, the first disciple. Before Mark writes the Gospel of Mark, John will be the last disciple of the 12 to die. According to tradition, he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. That would be a hard baptism. And he lived. And then he died uh, in his old age uh, while he was um, on the Isle of Patmos where he had been taken as a prisoner to live out the rest of his life as a prisoner. So, verse 40, Jesus says, But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus said, James and John, no. What about your request? No. It's not going to happen. God the Father has determined these things. It is up to him. We are working according to his plan. So I'd like to come at this a little bit different here and ask this question. What can we learn about prayer from this? Asking Jesus about things. The disciples asked Jesus for the desires of their heart. And Jesus said, no. What can we learn about prayer from this? Um, Can I ask anything from Jesus? Yes. Anything? Yes. Almost anything. Um, First, the first thing I think we should see from this is when, we, when it comes to prayer, remember that God is sovereign. He's in charge. He is sovereign. A good passage that reminds us of this is 1 Corinthians 12, 11. This is about spiritual gifts. And the Apostle Paul just says here, all these are the work of one, meaning spiritual gifts, and the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines So it says, when it comes to spiritual gifts, you don't get a pick. It's up to the Holy Spirit to choose what he gives you. He determines spiritual gifts. And my point is, is God is sovereign. He chooses, okay? So we acknowledge when it comes to uh, prayer, God is the one who is sovereign, and he determines what's best for uh, Christ followers. Are Are you okay with that? And it's really about, when it comes to prayer, are you okay that God is God and you're not? You don't get to make all those calls. And I know there's a lot of things that we would like to hear a a yes for, and it just doesn't happen, or it's a wait, or there's a lot of good things that we ask for that maybe God chooses not to answer. The second thing we should see from here is that my request needs to be aligned with Jesus and his purposes. My request needs to be aligned with Jesus and his purposes. And in the case of uh, James and John sitting at the right and on the left, they maybe weren't such bad things to ask, a little self-centered, a little self-focused. You know, he's going to have a kingdom. They're going to have responsibility. Why can't I be on the right and John be on the left? And um, John 15, 5 And verse 7 says this. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. This is what he's going to teach six days later. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So this is about that close, intimate relationship with Jesus that he wants us to have because he wants us to grow and to bear fruit and to be well-connected and to be healthy and to do things that advance his kingdom and honor him. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you get disconnected from me, you're in trouble when it comes to um, spiritual fruit, spiritual growth, spiritual production, and even it's going to relate to your prayer life. Verse 7 says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, that's that uh, close, intimate relationship where his words remain in us means we're obedient, we're following Christ. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Jesus says, I will answer. You can count on it. Now, I'm not here to tell you that every time you pray and ask something, he's going to do it just the way you ask. But there is a relationship between you walking with Jesus and his um, uh, aligning with him and being close to him. And the point is, is that when you remain in him and he remains in you, your heart will align with his heart. And uh, you'll begin to want things that he wants. And the more I grow as a follower of Christ, the more I want things that relate to what he wants. And yes, I can still be selfish and want things that just would make me happy but don't necessarily benefit the kingdom. But I don't don't get those things. Um, And another thing would be, just think in terms of Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do my request put God's kingdom first or my kingdom first? It's another little way to talk about is my heart aligned with God. So uh, James and John ask Jesus for a personal favor, and he says no. Next, in verses 41 through 45, uh, Jesus teaches his followers about servanthood, teaching Christ's followers about servanthood. Verse 41, the jealous response. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. This is kind of humorous. Twelve disciples, James and John, two, two that have spent extra time with Jesus. They they want Jesus to do this favor. He says no, and the other ten are upset with James and John. They're not upset with Jesus. They're upset with James and John. Why? Because James and John offended Jesus in this dark hour when he's facing death. No, they're upset because they didn't ask Jesus, um, what are you going to do for me? Would you do anything for me? This is is really envy on the part of the other disciples. They're disappointed that they didn't think of it first. They're disappointed that James and John were trying to get one up. They're trying to get ahead. They did this privately when nobody else was around. I think envy is an interesting issue for for the modern church. There's a lot of sins that we don't think we deal with. I think envy is a pretty interesting one, pretty big one. Um, The essayist Joseph Epstein writes, of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. This is from a Wall Street Journal article on March, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal, March 1st, 2014. It says, there's plenty of research to back up Epstein's statement. Psychologists have found that envy decreases life satisfaction and depresses well-being. Envy is positively correlated with depression and neuroticism, and the hostility it brings may actually make us sick. 
Recent work suggests that envy can help explain our complicated relationship with social media. It often leads to destructive and social comparison, which decreases happiness. Epstein goes on to say that envy makes us look ungenerous, mean, and small-hearted. No wonder nobody wants to own up to this unhappy sin. In verse uh, 42, Jesus talks about the world's measurement of graceness, and now he's going to offer a kingdom way, a better way, compared to how the world views um, success. Jesus called them together and said, verse 42, You know those who are regarded as rulers. The Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So this is how the Roman military does it. Uh, this is how it operated in the first century. This is how Roman and Jewish politics operated in the first century. This is how even it happened with the Jewish religious system in the first century. Authority is held over other people and exercised over, and people are told what to do, and uh, power and authority can be misused. Verses 43 through 44, the kingdom measure of greatness. So there's a world's measure of greatness. Now the kingdom measure, verse 43, he says, not so with you. This is not how it's done in God's kingdom. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus has been teaching this from the beginning. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Greatness is not about power, prestige, or influence. It's not about wealth or good looks or achievements. Greatness is about becoming a servant. Greatness is about humility. Greatness is about serving others and putting the needs of others first. And verse 45 is the ultimate act of greatness. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. This is why Jesus came to the earth. Jesus uses the term Son of Man about himself and the Son of Man is that term that comes from the Old Testament, Daniel seven thirteen and 14 that speaks of the glory of the Messiah. It is a picture of God. And Jesus identifies with this term, Son of Man. He did not come to this earth, the Son of Man, to have people wait on him. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a very short part of a sentence. It is loaded with theology. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's some observations. That is, he intentionally gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it. It was his choice. That's why he went up to Jerusalem. Uh, the second one is, he gave his life as a ransom. The ransom, the word means it's a price paid to purchase one out of slavery. People are slaves to sin. We have been slaves to sin. And he came to pay for our ransom so that we could be freed from that slavery to sin. The word for for here is it means in place of or instead of. It's a major concept here. It is about the substitutionary atonement. Christ died for us. He took our place. He was our substitute. Um, this is all stuff you know, but this is very early in the New Testament period. They haven't heard of it clearly. 
before. And it says that he will give his life as a ransom for many. And this is a, uh, an allusion back to Isaiah 52 and 53, where the suffering servant would give his life for many. And the concept isn't just more than one. The concept is, and it includes many nations, the concept is uh, for all. There's a, there's a term in Greek philosophy where discussion about what's the relationship between the one and the many? Is there an ideal man, and how does that relate to the rest of mankind? Those kinds of questions. Jesus is that ideal, and he gave his life for the rest of mankind, the many. Um, that's so John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and son, only son that whoever... That's why whoever is possible, because he died for the many. So following Jesus requires me to be a servant. John 13, 14 picks this up. Now that, this is John 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So should we have a foot washing service because of this passage? We could. Wouldn't be bad. I have set you an example. That's what this is about. It's an example that you should do as I've done for you. He's been a servant to them. He has served them. They needed their feet washed, so he he did it. That's the example. Very truly, I tell you, a servant, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's the one who's sending the disciples. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed. You will have God's favor if you do them. And Jesus is asking for obedience. Galatians 5.13 tells us this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't be lazy. Do not use the freedom you have because your sins are forgiven. You know you're going to heaven. Don't use that freedom to be lazy. Rather, serve one another humbly in Love. So, uh, are you a servant? Are you lazy? Are you too important to serve other people? Now, I have one more passage I want us to look at. For those of you who are worried about if you serve, you're going to burn yourself out and people are going to take advantage of you. Okay? Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. So this is a well-known passage. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So most important commandment in the whole Bible is to love God first. Him first, love him. And then he tells us, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So love your neighbor. Take care of him. Serve your neighbor. All the law in the Old Testament can be summed up in these two. 613 commands in the Old Testament. All the law in the Old Testament can be summed up here. All the law in the New Testament can be summed up here. Love God first. Love your neighbor second. Big key right here. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a major assumption that you can take care of yourself, that you can provide self-care, that you know when you need sleep. You know when you need to take a shower. You know when you need clean clothes. 
You, you know when you need to rest. And that you can take care of yourself. You can love yourself in an appropriate way so that you'll be healthy. You'll know what you need spiritually. You know how to grow spiritually. You know you need God's word. You know you need to prayer. You need prayer. These are just things you do as a follower of Christ to be healthy. And you cannot serve without getting burned out if you don't serve in the power of the Holy Spirit, if you don't walk with Christ. Because if you try to serve without the power of the Holy Spirit, you will burn out. Okay. Last, verses 46 through 52. Following Jesus teaches me to live by faith. Following Jesus teaches me to live by faith. Verses 46 to 48, the encounter with the blind man. Then they came to Jericho. There we are. Remember that? It's 18 miles north uh, east of Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. In the first century, there were two Jerichos one mile apart. One was the old city, and it was um, really in ruins. And a mile was a, 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 apart was a new city, and it was built by Herod for a winter palace. And I've been there and seen those locations. Um, and so this happened between the two cities, likely. And as they were leaving probably the old city, and a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus. Interesting thing, Timaeus means honor. So here's this blind man who's a beggar, and he's a son of honor by name, was sitting by the roadside begging, you know, that road that they're taking to Jerusalem, the way of Jesus, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So here's a desperate man, and he's a beggar, and he's just sitting there beside the road, and that's, how, that's his income. And he is not a valued person in society. Many rebuked him, verse 48, and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus wasn't important enough according to the people around Jesus, that he should meet Jesus. And they tell him to be quiet. Don't bother the master. He's too important, and you are not. And uh, the term son of David here, interesting, he calls it twice, and it's the first time it's used of Jesus in the book of Mark. It's a term that speaks of Messiah. It's a term that Jewish people understood that the Messiah would be connected to David from 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13. When your days are over, this is to David, 1,000 years before Jesus. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, David, I will raise up an offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. It's going to be a descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. We've been talking about that kingdom in the book of Mark. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And it seemed like it was going to be Solomon because he's going to build a temple. But look at this. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oh, that's not Solomon. That's somebody else. It's the Messiah, son of David. And so this man is crying out. We don't know how much he knows about Messiah, but he recognizes there's something unusual. And this may be the one. Verses 49 through 50, there's an invitation to the blind man. Jesus stopped him and said, call him. To Jesus, he was important. So they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you, throwing his cloak aside. He jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now he has a chance to meet Jesus, and he goes for it. There's a question for the blind man, verse 51. 
What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. That's the same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Well, we'd like to sit on the right. Ooh, sit on your left. What does this guy want? He's a beggar. Does he ask for money? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. It's pretty straightforward. Not looking for a position or wealth or power. He just wants to be able to see. And then the verse 52, the gift to the blind man. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. Jesus sees the man's faith. Jesus heals the man of his blindness. By, by the way, Isaiah 35, verse 5 says that there's a time coming. This is eight centuries before Christ. This is what Messiah will do. When you see these things, he will heal the sick. He will give sight to the blind. That's exactly what he does. And follow Jesus along the road. You see, believing is seeing. And this man began to follow his leader to Jerusalem where he will see him die on a cross. He followed Jesus along the road. Here's a question as we close. What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? What if you got to ask him face to face? What would you ask for? The great thing is we can ask for prayer. What do you want him to do for you? Is this request kingdom-centered or self-focused? Question two, do you trust Jesus with your life? Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with your marriage? Or do you try to, like, control that? Do you trust him with your kids? Do you trust him with your job? Do you trust him with your money? Do you trust him with your sex life? Do you trust him with your material possessions? Here's some scriptures to remind us about trusting Jesus. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So... If we don't trust, we cannot please God. If we don't trust promises given to us, we cannot please God. Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So this is a very important concept in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a very important concept to the church. We come to faith in Jesus We come into a relationship with Jesus by faith. But not only that, we start there, but it's from first to last. It continues day by day by day. We learn, we trust, we follow Jesus. We trust him. It's by faith. It's not by sight, which is 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we live by faith, not by sight. And then John 14, 15. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. This is about obedience. Now, here's the question. What's the the relationship between faith and obedience? Well, they're kind of the same thing. Faith is taking God at his word. Obedience is doing God's word. And how can I live by faith without obedience? If God tells me to do something, it means I 
take God's word into my life, I, and I, I embrace it, I, and I, I do what he says. Um, so as we, we close, I want you to think about that. What is God, what, what do you want from Jesus, and do you trust him? Let's pray. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, as we uh, think about Mark chapter 10, there's some pretty basic things. What is it that we want from you? You know the answer. And the other question is, do you trust Jesus? You trust him with your life? You trust him with your family, your marriage, your kids? your friendships, your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You trust him with your money. You, you trust him with your career, your future decisions. Thank you, Father, for the example given today uh, in the life of the disciples, that they weren't perfect and they were on a high learning curve. And sometimes we are on a high learning curve. God, help us to grow our faith, to trust in you. May we be bold in asking you for what we need. May we seek first your kingdom and trust you to add all that we need. For Jesus' sake, amen.